You're listening to IEPs and more with Kathy Greco. Answering your questions and talking to parents and professionals in the field of care and education of kids and young adults. Welcome to my talk with Stephanie Ferris. Stephanie is a professional I have known over a decade. We have shared quite a few clients over the years. Stephanie is a reading specialist. She has a teaching credential. She tutors students. She spends a lot of time developing and furthering and honing her craft so that she can best support those she works with. Stephanie is wise and kind and really brings the love of reading to all of her students by using ingenuity, experience, and knowledge. Enjoy. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you for sharing your time and your knowledge with us today. I would like to first say welcome and then have you talk a little bit about your early background in teaching so our listeners can get to know a little bit about you. Hi, Kathy. To go way back, because this helps understand the path I chose for teaching was I went to an elementary school that had a Spanish immersion program. It was actually the very first school district in the United States to have the Spanish immersion program. And I learned how to read and write in Spanish first. And I still had my Libro de Actividades in Spanish. And then I went on to get my degree with an emphasis in bilingual education. And I did my student teaching in a modified bilingual classroom. And after all that learning of Spanish and doing teaching in Spanish for student teaching, I didn't want to teach in a bilingual classroom. And my husband and I had just recently moved to a new county in a new city. And I applied at our local neighborhood school district. And I received a call asking me to come in for a interview. And the position was a second, third grade teacher for an English language development self-contained classroom. I'd never heard of this before, but it turned out it was my dream job. It was um, children that English was not their primary language, and I'd be able to instruct them in English, but use all my Spanish to be able to communicate with the parents, parent-teacher conferences, back-to-school night, things like that. So I got this dream job, and I go into my classroom to get it ready for my students, and they're all second, third graders, but none of them are reading at a second or third grade level because they're all new to the language. So they're not anywhere near grade level with reading, but those were the textbooks that were given to me. The reading curriculum was a second grade reading curriculum for my second graders. The reading curriculum was a third grade curriculum for my third graders. I needed books. And so I came up with an idea to get to get books for my kids. And I was a newlywed. And so Money was tight. We were then had finished graduate school, so we were paying off his student loans. So we didn't have a lot of extra money to buy books. I ended up going to my local library because I'm a huge reader and I loved my library growing up. So I went to my library and I sat down and I went through tons and tons of books, turned them over, wrote down the publisher's addresses. And just to kind of put this in context, this was before the internet 
is what it is today. Now, yeah, that was when it was the Dewey Decimal System. Right. I'm aging myself. Now I could just go online. But back in the day, I went to the library. I looked at tons of my favorite books growing up, turned them over, wrote down the addresses, maxed out my library card, took others home. I sent letters out to publishers. It was a simple letter just asking for anything that they had. Kathy, the response was overwhelming. I got boxes and boxes of books shipped to my school. Not only did I have books to help me provide teaching instruction to my second and third graders, but I was able to give books to my students to have their own, to create their own libraries at home because the majority of the students I worked with came from very challenging backgrounds where they didn't have a lot of extra resources to be able to pay for books. It was difficult for them to get library cards. Sometimes I think back then they didn't have the library applications in another language. So that was challenging for them. I was able to just give them books. So that's that's my background in a nutshell of how I started teaching. So did you just write to the publishers and explain what the class environment you were working in and why needing books was important for your teaching? A little bit. I kept the note very short and simple, four sentences. Um, And the reason is because I didn't want to request certain types of books because the more specific I made the letter, I felt the less chances of getting a response. So I just asked for anything, any books. Some of the books were not appropriate for my grade level. I was able to share them with other teachers and share them with siblings. But for the most part, the publishers hit it out of the park. So I wasn't super specific at all because I didn't feel like I could be. I was a newlywed. I didn't have a lot of money. I was a brand new teacher. I was just grateful for anything that they sent. And okay. they all responded. Isn't that lovely? It is. It's something that has truly impacted my teaching. And from there, what did you do? Then I realized that all my background with teaching a child how to read was not exactly how you teach a child to read. It was the training I received, while it was good, it wasn't meeting the needs of working with the population that I had, I spent a tremendous amount of time and money going to all sorts of programs and learning how to teach reading and realizing that I couldn't depend, nor should I have, on parents to provide extra support at home. It was my responsibility. And the parents, they were wonderful, but they worked a lot of hours And a lot of them didn't speak English. And so it would be difficult for them to help with the the reading of English books by encouraging them to read in their primary language. But I did a lot of training and then I was asked to provide training. So I did trainings for our school district and I did trainings for our county and for other school districts across the state where I worked with teachers on how to help teach their children how to read. What was different, Stephanie, about your formal education and the other education you undertook to actually learn to teach kids to read? I think the the biggest difference was the lack of background knowledge. In my like teaching credential program, there was this assumption that students came to 
a teacher with a certain level of background knowledge. I didn't find that to be accurate. I, um, especially if you're teaching, you know, second, third grade, there's this assumption that they already have been taught the letters and the sounds and things like that, having a background knowledge and phonemic awareness from other grade levels. And I didn't find that to be super accurate. But also, the way that I was taught how to teach reading in all those classes I took, I felt like I was still missing the mark. While it worked with some students, it didn't work with all the students. And that's really where I went down this pathway of trying to figure out why all these strategies that I learned and went to all these classes, why they weren't reaching all the students. And that's when I discovered Horton Gillingham and a whole nother way of thinking about teaching reading, which is actually quite different than all that training I had at my teacher credential level. And then all that training I did as those beginning years of teaching. So when you talk about the foundational skills, are you sort of talking about what would align with the California standards? You would expect that a second grader would show up to you having at least been exposed and learning some of the first grade standards so you could build on that. Yes. And even more drastic, even more than that would be having a second grade student know how to open a book, know how to turn the page, know that what is the cover of the book. Like those type of background experiences were a surprise to me that as a second and third grade teacher, I had students that were not aware of those basic concepts. When you went on then to to teach in those years and then do more exploration and education, and you say you found Orton Gillingham that looked at teaching to read completely differently than what you had been exposed to or studying in the past, what was different? Oh my gosh, there's a whole nother podcast for this. But the basic <laughs> thing is, I try not to tear myself apart about how I used to teach reading and how I do now. Because, you know, you when you know better, you do better. So now I know better. So now I'm doing better. The way I was taught, and what's so surprising is this is still taught to this day at the majority of our colleges for teaching credential. There's an IEP I was recently at where they had a brand new reading specialist. She just, just got that degree. The brand new, newest of the training, and she is still using all these strategies that I learned 20 years ago that are not effective. For example, in this IEP, looking as a strategy, she said, look at the picture to help figure out the word. That's guessing. And we that's something that is so polar opposite than Orton Gillingham. And we don't encourage guessing at all. You have to know the sounds. And those are strategies that I too am guilty of. I used to do that because that was the training I received. And again, now I know better. So now I do better. It wasn't until I was working one-on-one and tutoring with students that I started recognizing like, gosh, all this old training that I had, and it wasn't working with certain students. That's when I started researching other ways to work with students that 
are not learning how to read. And I discovered Orton Gillingham, which is a very, there's many components to the program, but the one big difference is the phonics element. We teach these phonics skills. And I know so many times people and parents are like, oh my gosh, phonics, you know, so many times there's all these exceptions and you have to memorize all these rules. And I, I thought the same thing for years. And it wasn't until I'm working with students that nothing is working. And all of a sudden, I start going over these rules in a very precise, exact way. And they are getting it. They're learning it. They're able to tell me the rule. They're able to apply it in their reading. I'm able to give them unfamiliar text with no picture support. And they're reading it. These are the kids that for years have gone through our schools and have been in learning centers, had other private tutoring, small group intervention, and nothing has worked. And then they come here and we work on very specific phonics rules based on where they are. And it doesn't matter what the IEP says for their goals. I have to start where they are. They are learning. It is unbelievable. So it has been definitely a high point in my career. But I also know that the biggest concern I have is that so many of our universities that are providing teaching credentials are still using these, they're called like the queuing system, which is look at the picture, get your mouth ready, skip the word, what would make sense. That's all guessing. That is all guessing. That's where we're missing the mark on teaching reading. When you started doing tutoring, where was that in your career? When did that start to happen in the beginning? Um, I started tutoring after my daughter was born. So she was about one and I was still doing teacher training, but I was no longer full-time working in a classroom. I was a full-time mom, but I loved teaching so much and I wasn't willing to give it up, but I also loved, loved, loved being home with my daughter. So I started tutoring. She was about one and working with students privately with reading. How old is she now? She is 21. She graduated college last year and she's in grad school right now. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) So it's been 20 years that you've really been working with students in a one-on-one environment to support their reading. Yes. One of the things, Stephanie, that you have always done that I have never seen anybody else do, and it seems to be the biggest hook for kids who can't read, then they develop a fear of reading and an anxiety about reading. Reading is not pleasurable, very difficult. You start by creating books about them. Yes. How did that come about? A couple different ways. First is I did this in my classroom when I first started teaching. We'd make class books and it goes back to I was a newlywed. We were paying off my husband's student loans. We didn't have a lot of disposable income. And I had the wonderful books from the publishers that I always needed and wanted more. So we would make class books in our classroom. And those were always the most preferred in our classroom. And then when my daughter was born, she was speech delayed. And so I was very concerned because there's a tremendous amount of research that points to if your child has a speech delay, and there's different versions, different levels of this. 
but there's a big correlation between possible reading difficulties also. So when my daughter was diagnosed with a speech delay, I went into overdrive with working with her on reading. She was very young, um, but she loved reading. And so I made class books in my classroom. And then when my daughter was very young, we made our own books. And those were the books that she always selected. Also, we'd go to the park. I would take pictures of her at the park, slap them in a book. I like to go on the slide. I like to go, I like to play in the sand. All these different, just simple sentences. But she was so motivated to read the books because they were all about her. So she loved that. <laughs> and then when I was working in a one-on-one setting, either tutoring or home hospital, it was the same thing. By the time a student comes here, unfortunately, they have already been so, it's already been such a struggle with them with reading. So they tend not to love it, to say the least. So to create some buy-in so that they'll hopefully like reading a little bit, at least at the beginning, I'd create books either about them or their interest. And even my most reluctant readers, my most reluctant they would over time start requesting, oh, I like the Green Bay Packers. Can you make me a book about the Green Bay Packers? Whenever I meet with a parent before I work with a student, I always ask them about their interests. So if they like Legos, I want to know about it. So I'll make a simple book about Legos. And right away, it's a great way to build rapport with a student. And again, I want them to practice those books. I'm going to get them into real books also, but at the beginning, I want them to to read. And so I create books for them. And then I fade that because again, I want them into a trade book. Um, So then I eventually fade that, but they've got these books to read for quite a long time at home. And I love that the parents are also completely on board with this and, and they also support that too. So I appreciate that. But by the time you're ready to transition a student, you have been working with them quite some time. You have built rapport. They have a real trust in you. And so the transition into something more difficult does not create such anxiety as it might if they were in a classroom being handed a book like that. Oh, no, because I make a big deal about the book is fair. I make it, I use the word fair a lot with my students and I explain what that means. And I explain that like once I've taught you like this phonic skill or spelling generalization, then it's going to be fair for you, for me to incorporate this in the book that you're reading or um, sentences that you're going to be reading so that they feel comfortable when I present something to them, they know it's going to be fair. So it doesn't cause any sort of anxiety or anything like that, because I have made such a point to share that this is what I'm teaching you. Now, this is what it looks like in a sentence, in a word. This is what it looks like in a sentence. This is what it looks like in a book. And we continually to build that. And I'm always reviewing. So when I present things to them, there isn't, they, there doesn't tend to be any sort of anxiety or anything like that. In fact, I think it helps create risk takers where they feel comfortable reading an unknown book. A common strategy, and I use the word strategy very loosely here, but a common strategy in schools is for them to read the same book over and over and over again, you know, and that's something that we don't do here. And so I give them a book and it's always going to be unfamiliar because we've got lots of books to read. I don't, why do I want them to read the same one over and over and over again? There's a lot of great literature out there. 
So um, the books are fair. And so it helps decrease any sort of uneasiness about reading. Have you found in your tutoring experience that you have met kids who might be in third, fourth, fifth grade, and the school has never indicated that their reading level was far below their actual grade level? Unfortunately, yes. It goes back to the know better, do better. And I just don't think they know better. There's so many schools that still do the look at the picture, guess, things like that. But my hope is more and more universities will start to incorporate better training to help meet the needs. But it is very common for me to work with a kid where the school is claiming that they're not reading below grade level or that they just need to practice more at home. (laughs) I hear that one a lot. They would only read for 20 minutes every night. Or they tend to give them the same thing over and over and over again so that eventually the child might memorize enough of it where to the untrained teacher, you know, that they just don't realize that that's not reading. That's not reading. The naked eye, it may appear to be reading, but it's actually memorization. Right. I know that you have continued your education and training into the field of dyslexia. Can you talk a little bit about what that's all about and how you're working with kids and those things? I love it. It's been one of the the best experiences of my professional career is learning and studying about dyslexia. I've done a few minutes of training and I was just recently got my letter right here approved for the associate level with the Orton Gillingham Academy. And I know for the majority of people, they have no idea what that means. And let me just do a really like Reader's Digest version because a pet peeve of mine is when I see people write that they're Orton Gillingham trained. And the thing about that statement is it's really misleading because you can take one class and you can claim that you're Orton Gillingham trained. And so when parents hear about Orton Gillingham, they say, oh, I want an Orton Gillingham tutor. So they see that someone posted that they're Orton Gillingham trained, but there's a lot more to it than that. And so in addition to all the coursework I've taken, I just finished a year doing a practicum which is a year working with a fellow, which is the highest level at the Orton Gillingham level as a fellow. You're working with a student and you're submitting, you're videotaping the lessons that you're working with the student. And there's a hundred plus lessons that are required. And you have to submit 10 of those lessons over the course of a year. And the fellow looks at that video with a fine tooth comb and is really looking at the teaching. Are you doing everything you're supposed to be doing and providing feedback to you? And then after that year, you submit your application to the academy, which is similar to, it's just, it's a tremendous amount of additional work. You know, we do a student profile, we have to submit additional lessons, and it goes to the academy for approval or deferral. And so I was just recently found out that mine was approved. And so now I'm going on to the next level, and that's an additional two years of training and coursework and additional videos of my students. This is time it's two different students at two different levels. And again, those are videotaped lessons that are all submitted to my fellow and she analyzes them, tells me what's working, what's not, what to do, you know, what what she would change, things like that. And it's been phenomenal. When we say Orton Gillingham, for people that aren't readily familiar, 
Orton Gillingham is a peer-reviewed, researched methodology of teaching reading. Is that correct? I would say the easiest way is to explain it. It's an approach. So a lot of times people will contact me and say, do you use an Orton Gillingham program? And there is no such thing. It's an, it's an approach. There are programs that are based on Orton Gillingham, like Wilson is a perfect example. And I did go to the Wilson training. And so it's an approach. And so I think that is, can be kind of confusing to parents and to schools that aren't a lot of times schools want a program. They want something that's scripted, that tells their teachers, this is what you say. Um, and this is the order that you do it. And that's what sets Orton Gillingham apart is because the strategies, the, the multi-sensory, the diagnostic, it's all very unique to each student. And there isn't some textbook that I open up and say, okay, this is lesson one. This is what I do with you. Next student comes in. Yep, this is lesson one. This is what I do with you. It's all so catered to the student, but it's an approach to working with children that have dyslexia. So it actually sounds to me, the way you're describing it and describing your training, like it is a behavioral training program where they are monitoring your fidelity of the approach with your students. I mean, it it sounds like something that our friend Michelle would do in overseeing a program of their employees, right? Take fidelity data on the instructor or the behaviorist rather than anything else. They're refining, helping to refine your skill and approach to this This program. Yeah, to to this way of teaching. Yeah. And I find it, you know, as teachers, we all have to do student teaching. Back in the day, you know, I did my student teaching. And when people ask what a practicum is, I compare it to student teaching, but I said it's about times 100 because I never got this level of feedback in student teaching. And I wish I would have. So this, you know, she analyzes my lessons and tells me like this, you're on track. Absolutely. Tell me why you did this. Have you thought about this? It just impacts my teaching so much and my students are benefiting. And I, the parents have to release an authorization to allow them to be videotaped. But it's great because I share some of these videotapes with the parents and they're able to see. It's so funny because, you know, they're watching a lesson on open and closed syllables. Parents are like, I have no idea what an open and closed syllable is. And they're looking at how to do syllable division. So it's it's really great for them to be able to see, like, do their child has to work like 10 times harder than so many others just to learn how to read. And they so, see that on the videos. Are you creating the curriculum then? Yes, 100%, which I love. At the beginning, I thought, how am I going to manage all this? But it's really no different than how I did teaching as a teacher of the second and third grade classroom, because there was no curriculum that I had that was at their level. So I had to create or use the curriculum that was given as a skeleton and just completely redo it. (laughs) So in some ways, it's no different, but I love it because, you know, there's Components, for example, a part of it is they have to read these sentences, and they're all sentences that are based on the new phonics skills that we're learning. Well, I type them every day before my tutoring lesson the next day, but I make the sentences, it means something to the student. So like a sentence today was, Will Smith is the catcher for the Dodgers. And so those were all fair words. 
we were working on CDC. I'm not going to go down the phonics <laughs> pipeline here, but the skill that we were working on, I had a couple words in there that apply to that skill. And then some old familiar ones, like he knows that, you know, GE, Gen, all these different phonics skills. And it is great sentences, but, you know, game five is tonight. <laughs> and so it was, there was like such buy-in when he was reading that sentence. And then I use like family members' names, if they're fair, if I've taught that sound. So I'm creating the curriculum every day with the exception of the books. And so, and this is also something that's so different from my beginning is that I think when I was first learning how to teach reading and I took all these classes years ago, there was this term called decodable books. And so those are books like the fat cat sat on the mat. And I thought, no way, no how am I ever going to spend my hard earned money on those ridiculous books. They're boring. There's no reading comprehension in them. I'd rather eat glass than give a student of mine one of those silly decodable books. Then no better, do better. And so doing all this training with Orton Gillingham, and they talk about the value of those decodable books. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't do it. I can't. But a lot has changed in those decodable books now, because it's so important for children, especially with dyslexia, to read books that are fair. So that means we have to concentrate the vocabulary on what they've learned. So decodable books have gotten so much better than when I first started teaching, you know, 25 plus years ago. So, Stephanie, just, just for people who don't understand decoding, can you just tell what decoding is? Sure. Two important words, decoding and encoding. So decoding is the ability to know your sounds, to be able to see a word and sound out the letters. You know what that sound, that letter makes the sound. Encoding is to be able to do that for spelling, for be able to write those sounds in a word. So decoding and encoding are super important for the ability to read. So these decodable books are books that focus on just a couple sounds that's very isolated. And again, back in the day, no way. You could not make me give one of my students those books, but they've come a long way since then. Thank goodness. So they're much better now. Those are books I start off some of my students with reading and then I fade those and I want them to get into those books that are available at Barnes and Noble. And I want them to be able to get into books that their classroom teacher reads aloud to them. So we start off with decodable, but then we get into more trade books. But that's the only part of my lesson that I don't create from scratch is that decodable book. Everything else I create from scratch every day. What is the format of teaching reading? Is there like, do you teach phonics first, decoding, encoding, or does it all sort of come together? There's a lot of different layers to teaching reading. One of the biggest predictors of reading success is phonemic awareness. That's like the nutshell definition of that is the ability to manipulate sounds. That's And the thing that makes phonemic awareness tricky is that it's something that we don't see. So for example, I think it's really hard for parents to know whether their child's classroom teacher is teaching phonemic awareness because it's not something that's going to come home in a workbook. It's not something that's going to come home on a worksheet. It's done out loud. The really effective teachers are able to communicate that to parents, like in a newsletter or on their classroom website. They'll put like phonemic awareness. We worked on rhyming today or phonemic awareness. We worked on manipulating the beginning sounds. So that way parents know 
that that classroom is their child's being instructed in phonemic awareness. But that is one of the most important layers of teaching reading. Can you just give an example of manipulating a beginning sound? Sure. Say the word cat. Cat. Change the k to f. What's your new word? Fat. Okay. That's big. That's the and and the in within phonemic awareness, like everything else in life, there's different levels of difficulty. A lot of times in kindergarten and preschool, it's rhyming. That's what they focus on. This is where, again, that effective teacher, it would be so great. Those effective teachers communicate to parents. We've been working on rhyming. So when your child comes home saying like, an elephant sat on you, things like that. Like we read that story. We were playing with rhymes. And so it helps parents understand like, that's just not silly gibberish. That's learning <laughs> and being able to manipulate sounds is so effective when teaching reading. Children with dyslexia need it like times 10. Phonemic awareness, five minutes a day. It's not something that takes like, you know, hours and hours, five minutes a day. If it's consistent, fantastic. But children with dyslexia need more than that. Can you define what dyslexia is? Like, how would a parent know? Okay, I think a couple of things. What it's not, it's not reading backwards. It's not, okay, that's really important because first of all, there's certain words like was and saw. Please don't go in home and think that your child has dyslexia because they read the word was as saw. It doesn't mean that you're writing B's and D's backwards. A lot of times that is very developmental. So that's what it's not. What it is, is it's neurological in origin. And that's really important to understand because believe it or not, there's still a chunk of our population that believe that there is no such thing as dyslexia. That's troubling. It's neurological in, in origin. It's categorized by like difficulties with accurate word recognition. So poor spelling, poor word recognition, decoding abilities are weak. These are children that read usually very slow, halting, repeating the word over and over again. They go back and they try again. They have usually tremendous struggles with also spelling. And the problem is, is a lot of times that there's secondary consequences of dyslexia. So in addition to it being neurological in origin, difficulty with accurate word recognition by poor spelling. Secondary consequences could be things like poor vocabulary. And I see this all the time in the students I work with because it makes sense. If you struggle so hard with reading, you're not going to just pick up a book for fun and read it. So you're not getting a lot of vocabulary embedded in text. The last thing you want to do when you go home is read a book. Also, because reading has been so unenjoyable, whatever the prefix is for that one, <laughs> um, <laughs> non, a little confusing, because it's not, it's something that hasn't been enjoyable. A lot of times they don't want to like listen to a story from their parents also, because it's just not enjoyable experience for them. So they're not getting that vocabulary instruction. A lot of times a secondary consequence of dyslexia is also reading comprehension. If they are reading so slow, and a lot of times the book is not fair, right? Because here the book is fair, but in the traditional classroom, it's hard. You know, the teachers don't have the training to know that. 
So they're given books that are not fair. They're trying to struggle reading. They're not going to understand what they're reading. So then they appear as having a reading comprehension deficit. Is it really a reading comprehension deficit or is it the book is just too hard? So there's lots of secondary consequences of dyslexia that are really misunderstood in a traditional classroom. So when you're working with a kid with dyslexia, what I'm understanding, and I could be wrong, is that you really have to work on the underpinnings of reading, the phonemic awareness, the decoding, the encoding, really developing those skills so that then they can move to a next level. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That is such a critical part of my instruction. And so often I hear from my teaching colleagues, like, oh my gosh, the phonics rules, you know, most of the time they don't work. There's always exceptions and they're so boring. You know, what's boring. You know, what's terrible is when you have a child that can't read. When I am teaching these rules, I'm very concise and very precise. My kids that struggle the most live for it. They want to know that rule. They want to know how it applies. Most times they've never had instruction like that. They, it's not, a, this is, I want to make this really clear. This is not a criticism of our classroom teachers. So many of them are so effective, but they don't know better. So they don't do better. And also there you have classes of 30 kids and they have a curriculum that they they have to get through, right? So often these kids kind of get slipped between the cracks. They're not then understood to have this reading issue and the teacher's moving along and the gap gets wider. Right. You know, the, the student is looking at pictures, so they're getting by. They are kind of guessing on some words, so they're getting by. Um, They're not causing any sort of um, behavior concerns in the classroom. So they're getting by. And I think that's what's so challenging is by the time I get them, they're upper elementary. And what I would have given to have them at that first grade level, you know, right? When they were in first grade so that, okay, let me teach you about the sounds. Like one of my students, he's in resource and learning center. I'm not a homework helper. I always make that really clear to parents. If you want your child to have some support with homework, I'm not the one for you. I'm not going to follow the reading curriculum. I'm not going to follow whatever book report he has to do. And if you want something like that, there's plenty of others. I'm going to be working on what he needs. And sometimes that doesn't align to his IEP because sometimes the goals just don't match where that student is. But I do like to see what they're working on. And so one of my students brought home this worksheet of paper, this worksheet, and it showed It was a list of words and sentences that were the short A sound, let's say. And so it had like pat, okay, pass. And now this is way like my students well beyond that. I'm like, okay, this is totally great though. This is an opportunity for you to be really successful. You can help your peers. But as I'm looking at the words, I asked my student like pass, P-A-S-S. Now my student knows why that is not spelled P-A-S. My student knows that. But it's this opportunity. I'm like, you know what? When you go to the classroom, why don't you share with your teacher or ask your teacher, why is PASS spelled P-A-S-S and not P-A-S? And you, know, you can share with your classmates in this. And I was 99% sure 
that teacher would not know why it's P-A-S-S and not P-A-S. And um, my kiddo was so disappointed because he comes back and he said, how'd it go? And he said, my teacher told me that he was the teacher and let him be the teacher and I'm the student. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> and so it was an opportunity for him to share something that he knew, but instead it was, it was not well received. <laughs> well, and not only that, it kind of squelches the curiosity of children. Right. Uh, I mean, that was a completely appropriate question to the lesson. Right. And, and my suspicion was, and I believe it's accurate, is that this paper that was given to my student, um, short A sounds, for my student, it was fair because I had taught him all this. But for the other students, how would they know how to spell P-A-S-S? How would they know how to spell, um, like then the worksheet came home for short I, and it was C-H-I-L-L, all these different things. Um, chick, C-H-I-C-K. Well, how does he know that C-K is after I? How come you wouldn't spell it with a K? I've taught my students that, so they know it inside and out. So even if I'd never, ever given my student the word chick, that would be fair because I've already taught them those sounds. And I make a big deal about that when I'm giving them like a sentence to spell. They haven't memorized this sentence. They've never seen this sentence before. I give that sentence to spell. In this one sentence yesterday, one of the words in the sentence was crime, C-R-I-M-E. He'd never spelled that word before, nothing. He hadn't rainbow written it 10 times. He hadn't written it, you know, all these things that they do at school. And I always make a big deal about that. Like, wait, you didn't do a practice spelling test with this at home? You didn't, you didn't write it 10 times? You didn't do your different color crayons and write it rainbow writing? How on earth did you know how to spell this word? Well, he knows how to spell it because he knows the sounds. He knows the rules of the language. And there are exceptions. And I teach those exceptions. A lot of times it's about word origin, or it's about how the language has changed, or sometimes there's, you know, flat out exception. And I explain that to them and the kids love it. They love it when I explain why, why bus is B-U-S and not B-U-S-S. Like why? Because it comes from autobus. And so uh, same thing with um, like gel, G-E-L. Why is it not G-E-L-L? It comes from gelatin. And yet there's like the word yes. That's an exception. It's a very old word. And so I'm able to explain the exceptions. And again, so many people think, oh, it's so many rules. How do you keep them straight? It is so concise. And I'm constantly reviewing, not memorizing those same words. I'm shuffling through all different kinds of words and constantly reviewing those, those rules so that they're able to explain it to me. And that's really important. It's like that they're able to explain the rule back to me. And I couldn't do that if I went on and on and muffled my way through it. But when I say things like long spelling right after short vowel, they get it and they know, okay, I used a long spelling. It's going to be CK and not K because it's right after a short vowel. So those are things like over all these different ways to explain very precisely, very concisely, the most reluctant readers that have struggled in school and now their social emotional well-being is a huge concern because they're being told by their teachers, if you only practice harder, if you only spent more time reading this at home, if you only, 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 only you did more and more and more, instead of reflecting as a teacher, I'm like, what can I do as a teacher to better support this student? By the time I get them, they have their social, emotional well-being is a huge concern. It, the interesting part is that from kindergarten to third grade, the students 
are learning to read. But from fourth grade on, they're reading to learn. Therefore, if they haven't learned the underpinnings and the rules during first through third grade and they get to fourth grade, then it starts to affect their entire learning process. And a lot of these kids that I've seen end up thinking they're stupid or defective or not good in some way when the reality is the responsible adults never identified the underlying issue supported and addressed it so that this student then could work up to their potential, which might be average or above average, even though without that intervention, they were low. The big concern I have is that, let's say that they, the district does recognize that the student is struggling, so they provide intervention. That's another concern because so many of our intervention programs are not really worth sending a student to them. You know, a lot of times we have volunteers that do the intervention, or it's a scripted program that does the intervention. It's an aid that does it. And while all these, you know, volunteers, aides, and while they all mean well, and they try really hard, they just, most of them don't have the, the understanding of what to do if you're using a scripted program and the child doesn't, what, what if they make an error? How do you how do you do error correction? You know, uh, earlier we spoke briefly about like the one on one. When I work one on one with a student in a school district, um, and I'm in the classroom briefly as of as we start to transition and fade my role, I got to see firsthand the aides doing a lot of this intervention in the in like a resource classroom, and it's. It's a little concerning. So it's again, it's not all programs at all. I'm sure there's many good ones, but um, we really need to analyze our intervention programs that we have and make them as strong as possible with providing a teacher that really understands how to teach reading. Because otherwise, we take our student that's been identified as struggling, we put them in intervention, and they still don't make progress because they are with someone that doesn't have the understanding or they're overly relying on a program. You talked about two different scenarios of working on IEP goals and then also even working as a one-to-one teacher in a school setting. When you're tutoring a, a student in your environment and looking at IEP goals and those kinds of things, do you also sometimes join the IEP team at the request of parents to kind of help see what's going on in school? I do. Many times parents request that I attend the IEP meetings and I try to be as supportive as possible, but it can be challenging um, because at the end of the day, I'm just an outsider joining the IEP meeting. <laughs> I am um, there to support the parents, but most of the time the school districts would prefer that an outside person not be a part of the IEP meetings. And I understand But yes, I, you know, parents request and I try if I'm available to attend, but it's not one of my favorite things to do. No, right. You try to build collaboration in all settings and sometimes it's received and usually it's not so well received. Right. And then you 
mentioned being a one-to-one teacher in a school setting. And that is a whole other program (laughs) that was created that I think we should talk about separately in a separate session, just about the behavioral clinics that you facilitate as a one-to-one teacher with a student who has usually very challenging behaviors such that they cannot be on a comprehensive school campus and what that looks like and how successful you have been in integrating these students back into their home schools and moving right along with their learning. So I'm going to ask you if you'll if we can schedule a second session to do that because I do think that that is such an interesting and critical part for people to know and understand. But I feel like Stephanie, you are so knowledgeable in all of these things. I could talk to you forever. And I know that parents really value you. I I know that every student that has ever had the good fortune and blessings to work with you has benefited tremendously and their educational trajectory has changed on a level that gives them hope and the ability to have an independent future. And I know that's everything to you, but I know you don't have to work. People don't know your background. They don't know your life, but you don't do this for money. You do not have to work. You do this for the love of reading and the love of students and to try to give students the love of reading. Thank you, Kathy. That's very sweet of you to say. Thank you very much. Yes, and it's all true. You've been listening to IEPs and More with Kathy Greco. If you have questions, guest suggestions, or comments, you can reach out to Kathy at kathy at grecoadvocacy.com. No part of this podcast can be reused or rebroadcast without written consent. Copyright 2021 IEPs and more. Thanks for listening.